Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host, Gordon Kadic. Usually, I'm the host of another NBN show, Darts and Letters. Recently, we had an episode called Mutual Aid and the Anarchist Radical Imagination. That episode looked at the theory and practice of different forms of horizontal, anti-statist, left-wing organizing. There's a familiar kind of story about the post-occupied left goes something like this. In the 90s, it was sort of anarchist-styled, but since the global justice movement and Occupy didn't really seem to deliver, the left changed course. It became a little bit more state-oriented. Just look at Bernie Sanders, the squad, and a number of other politicians that we've been pretty excited about. But this kind of story misses autonomous social movements from the movement for black lives to organizing for indigenous sovereignty and so many more really impactful and important social movements. So on our episode, we featured a discussion with professors Alex Kasnabish and Max Haven, two social movement scholars. We briefly discussed how sociologists misread these kinds of autonomous groups. But we also had a much, much wider conversation about social movement theory, and I thought that this would just be perfect for the New Books Network. Max and Alex are author of a book called The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity. The book examines the radical imagination of social movements. They argue that social movements aren't just about getting some important policy victories. They're about people coming together and imagining, and building, a new kind of radical future. This actually isn't a new book, I must say. It came out in 2014. But I thought it was a good time to revisit the book and ask how times have changed. We have a wide-ranging conversation on the history of social movement theory, the radical imagination, and the legacy of the book, and how the concepts apply to today. In some ways, it seems like the far right has the most creative radical imaginary. We talk about what that means for their ideas and how social movement scholars should respond to this emerging reactionary threat. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, consider checking out the rest of what we do at Darts and Letters. You can find us at dartsandletters.ca. Okay, on to my conversation with Professors Alex Kasnabish and Max Haven. Well, hello, gents. It's so excited to have you actually on the show. I mean, uh, our audience may or may not know we've been kind of working together in the background on a couple of um, weird and exciting episodes, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to reflect back on those, but also just to introduce you to, to the rest of folks. So thank you for coming on. A pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Both of you are uh, frequent collaborators and co-authors, and I kind of first discovered you. I can't even remember first when I first discovered you, but certainly the first thing I read was your Radical Imagination book uh, back back in 2014, um, which is really an inspiration for a lot of the episodes that we've been working on, or a framing at least of a lot of the episodes that we've been working on. So I thought it would be interesting, sort of just by way of background, if um, if maybe you could take me back a little bit, like back before 2014. Um, I know, Max, now you're in Berlin, but then you were in Halifax, right, with Alex. What were you doing? What was going on? And what compelled you to, to begin this project? Well, Alex and I met at grad school in Hamilton, Ontario, when Alex was finishing his PhD in anthropology, and I was starting my PhD in uh, cultural studies. Alex was researching Zapatismo, meaning the way that the the inspiration 
and story of the Zapatistas was resonating around the world with different social movements, sort of since they emerged on the scene in the early 90s to the time when he was writing that work in the, the first decade of the 21st century. And I had was doing a bunch of research on the imagination, in particular the imagination as it circulated around finance and finance capital mm. and how imaginary money gets made and unmade. And uh, we were both involved uh, in union organizing in the university sector. And then, uh, so we started our conversations then, both of us having come to radical politics in what's now sort of remembered as the anti or alter globalization movement. And particularly the way that that movement really was organized around autonomous principles and anarchist principles, a sense that grassroots democracy was possible and that the solutions needed to come from the bottom up, uh, very much inspired by movements from the global south. And then we both ended up in Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, and we managed to get a small grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council knowing, you know, based on a bunch of conversations that the two of us had had, that we were very frustrated with the shape of social movement research mm -hmm. uh, in that moment. There was a lot of very extractive research going on where researchers would sort of go and interview movements and then sort of claim that they were representing those movements or sharing information about those movements, but in ways that looked really to us kind of pretty extractive. Like mm -hmm. the academics got promotions and jobs and kudos and, you know, all the rest. And the movements kind of a lot of the time got their time wasted. And so we started out with this question, well, like what what would it mean to actually do a form of research that would give more to social movements than we would take away? And a second related question was like, and what is it that we as radical academics who are sort of unhappily inside the university in some way, what is it that we have to give that's different that no one else can give? We really wanted to, you know, as uncomfortable as we were within academe, and its structures of value and hierarchies, we wanted to really say, like, what is this strange privilege that we've been given? And like, how could we actually make that available in a certain way? So your frustration in terms of social movement research, Max and Alex, I wanted to, to pick up on that. And there's some great uh, sections in your book. I'm just trying to find the, um, the quote here. Since its inception, scholars of social movement studies have tended to approach social movements as objects of study in a manner not dissimilar to an engineer studying a closed hydraulic system. Uh, I'm wondering if you can you can sort of tell me a little bit about that. What what was the dominant kind of paradigm of this of this research um, as you were as you were starting to write this book? Yeah, I mean. Um... Social movement research is something that both Max and I have been adjacent to, involved in, learned about as grad students, all this kind of good stuff. And I certainly identify myself now and before as a social movement scholar. But for anybody who's familiar with the field at all, I mean, and unsurprisingly, really, uh, the field comes out of a dominant trend in sociology that for a long time really didn't even understand uh, grassroots, community-based, mass-based politics as politics. You know, you have to kind of cast your mind back to the academy of the early 20th century. And that's sort of where our hydraulic model comes from, where, you know, society was understood by the folks who got to, to think, research, and teach about it as like a fairly ordered, self-regulating, equilibrium-oriented system. So, what is that? You know, when we think about sociology and, you know, if, for those of you who sat through first year social classes, uh, you can think about sort of, you know, these functionalist theories where you have uh, a society that's ordered in certain kinds of ways. And that order is often taken as at least kind of natural or neutral, if not good. And then the question becomes, well, how does that order reproduce and sustain itself? And of course, what disappears from all of that is power relationships, inequalities, injustices. So you can imagine a society ordered in any kind of abominable ways, right? Uh, around slavery, around, you know, cannibalism, around whatever. And, and those things become kind of neutral in terms of their, their value and orientation. And, and we thought, first of all, that's ridiculous. Obviously, the oppressed uh, or exploited don't feel that way. But also, it, it just seemed to me missing something really critical about politics, which is that Politics isn't a thing that just lives in the hallowed halls of government 
or in bureaucracies or in policymaking centers where people with degrees get to sit around and, and make decisions. It also lives in the streets. It lives in uh, back rooms. It lives in, you know, pool halls. It lives where people are, are, are getting together, gathering and talking about their problems. And this, and that sounds probably pretty, pretty mundane for people to hear. I think most people understand that today. But from a perspective of mid 20th century sociology, that that actually wasn't a, a dominant position. And that actually carries through uh, subsequent decades and is a kind of the dominant frame that anthropologists, sociologists and others approached uh, you know, politics outside of institutions with for a long time. So you get this perspective from academic research about social movements, especially right up through the 70s, where really people who are sort of members of the professional managerial class are looking at the rest of society and not seeing politics at work in anything but the most formal and elevated spaces. And of course, that's a huge problem because if you don't see, if you can't look at the way social change is being driven by forces outside of those dominant institutions, then you're really missing a whole lot. But you're also telling a story about society that reinforces ruling class mythologies and ruling class power relationships that say only change made certain kinds of ways counts, only certain kinds of power relationships matter. And while, of course, it's not like you're casting a spell and making those movements magically go away when you do that, um, you are doing the work of being kind of the intellectual uh, class that supports ruling class relations then, right? If you're not looking at that stuff. And for us, um, more than just correcting that narrative, we wanted to correct it because we thought it was wrong, obviously. But we also thought there was something really critical being missed there by scholars who were avowedly paying attention to movements that were trying to create alternatives at a time when those alternatives seemed more and more urgently needed. So our question was not only hey, how can we get this right and make a better account, but how can research actually live up to its promise in a moment that seems increasingly crisis-ridden? And, and maybe you're you're thinking about going this place, Gordon, but like we sort of developed this kind of language to talk about the social movement research that we liked, basically. Yes. And it had to do with different different Latin words for voice. So on the one hand, we talked about like a lot of really respectable social movement research that we saw follow this strategy that we called like invocation, which is like where the researcher goes out and they study the movements and then they kind of reflect the movement back to them. Uh, selves. They sort of give an overview of what movements are doing. And they also dignify the movement uh, in academic prose. And that can be very useful for movements in a lot of mm. ways, you know, especially if it comes to trying to secure funding or it comes to trying to influence policymakers or many of the things social mm. movements try and do. Just an exercise almost in like legitimization for the social yeah, movement. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's really important work. I mean, both Alex and I have done this work in various other ways. Uh, so we're not trashing it. Uh, but it wasn't enough for us. And then there was another strategy that wasn't enough for us other that we called avocation from the sort of Latin word for being called away from something. And that's also something that both of us have done at various times in our careers, which is you basically show up as a as a researcher at a social movement to be like, make use of my skills, make use of my time, make use of my resources. Like really these things should be at the disposal of movements. Movements are already creating knowledge. We don't need academics to do that. They're already rigorous in the way that they're theorizing their experience. So like, let's redistribute the resources. Let's undercommon, to use the terminology that was later introduced by Stefano Harney and, and Fred Moten. Let's like, you know, steal from the institution and right. uh, play a little Robin Hood. But also we were a little dissatisfied with that. Um, I meant not dissatisfied in all circumstances, but there are sort of limits to how much you can do that. Um, and we felt it might also seed a little too much what's kind of interesting about being a researcher trying to work with social movements. And so we came up with this third strategy called convocation uh, for the Latin word for calling together. And that we imagined, okay, maybe the researcher then has a role that no one else is going to fulfill, which is to bring together transversal conversations between different social movements and between different people in social movements that aren't usually, don't usually create the space or time to have difficult conversations about political issues, social issues, issues of gender, race, class, difference, and also to try and create circumstances where this thing that we theorized as the radical imagination can spark into being. 
where you can actually have encounters and disagreements and arguments in a generative way that allow everyone who's participating to take the next leap of the imagination and, again, try and prefigure the kind of world that we want to create. Mm. That's interesting. It's like it's very... um... It's a nice little dialectic there. I mean, you're not sort of giving up everything, all of the privileges of academe and all of the sort of trappings of it. You're still kind of um, not totally subsuming yourself into the social movement, but at the same time, to go back to the sort of impartial observer of the hydraulic system, you're not actually just standing apart from the social movements. You're sort of like taking part in a way, uh, but in a way that, uh, to your point, Max, no one else, no one else has. That's, that's very interesting. So, okay, so let's make that concrete because because you tried to do that in Halifax. So tell me a little bit about kind of the early days of the radical imagination. So we're talking about a book, but the book is sort of based on a project um, that starts before the book is released, obviously. So what, what were you doing in Halifax with the social movements uh, in that milieu? The political scene in Halifax, interestingly, I think at the time that Max and I were becoming really engaged in it, both through our our lives here, but also our research, was also very fragmented and fraught. And for a lot of reasons um, that connected with larger political scenes elsewhere at the time, too. So, you know, for folks who were sort of aware and um, active at that time, uh, if you cast your mind back to the late aughts, you know, he were talking about just, just after the financial crisis, of, of that period and the, the subprime mortgage crisis, all that, there was this sense for at least a couple of years before Occupy where, you know, people felt like we're sort of sitting around saying, okay, this is, this is the crisis. This is the moment. What, what's going to happen? And of course, if we go back a little bit further to the early 2000s, we had 9-11, we had all the repression that followed that. We had what some people narrate as the kind of collapse of the alter-globalization movement in the face of all that, but that's really a much more complicated and nuanced story, I think. But in any case, all those things were going on in Halifax too. You had tensions between more radical, more militant organizations and more liberal conventional ones. You had long-term bridges of solidarity and support that had been built over decades before that had been fractured by certain kinds of political events and fallout and the work, the very intentional work of the ruling class and its repressive agents in the city. So there'd been a lot of animosity built between movements in a fairly small place where folks had personal connections or used to have personal connections that had been fractured and fragmented by political infighting. You had movements or groups that wouldn't speak to each other. You had others who were trying to build bridges doing so perhaps unsuccessfully. So into this very fractured, but still very lively, radical milieu, Max and I entered. And because, you know, we were both entering the political and social scene, having come from somewhere else more recently, we were kind of, you know, new actors on the scene. We had this weird distance, even though we were politically uh, in solidarity with many of the, the radical struggles in the city. But we, were, we had this kind of like political and existential distance from the movements. We weren't activists within them. We weren't simply observers of them, as Max was talking about before in terms of our strategies. So that weird, unjust autonomy and distance from those movements allowed us to actually invite them and their participants into spaces that, you know, people were still suspicious of us and or thought we were just bourgeois academics trying to, you know, at first anyway, I'm sure there was some of that suspicion, but the productive charge of that distance, I think made a big difference because we could set the stage and just facilitate conversations that weren't happening then under the banner of any particular movement or any particular group or ideological trajectory. And so that's sort of how we started. We started with inter- with one-on-one interviews with activists in the city, first of all. You know, very typical kind of ethnographic approaches to social movement work. We did long-form, open-ended interviews, really focusing on people's political biographies too, asking them, you know, how did you come to your understanding of radical politics? What would it mean to win? Uh, You know, like, where does your notion of possibility, of alterity, of the future come from? These kinds of questions that activists in their day-to-day very rarely get the chance to ask each other or think about because most activism in a society as awash in inequality, violence, exploitation, and domination as ours is, 
is so much oriented around, um, you know, interventions, reaction, pushing back against all those cutting edges of, of the system in which we're enmeshed. So those longer term visions, we were pretty convinced, you know, it's not that movements didn't care about them or that activists didn't have the time for them. It's that there were just so many other things that, that, that were pushing on their time and their resources. So we thought something productive that our research process could do was facilitate this kind of open-ended but focused conversation between different actors in the city in structured ways, not in not in sort of like loosey-goosey, you know, let's get together and talk about how we imagine a future world, but by focusing on some of the most, what we thought and what activists were telling us in interviews, some of the most pressing debates and issues that they didn't have time to talk about in their day-to-day organizing. Mm, interesting. So when you bring them all together, and like, thanks for that background, it sounds like there's a bit of beef <laughs> uh, amongst some of the activists there, conflict, right? And I imagine like, okay, I'm pretty ignorant of Halifax, and I, I may be mischaracterizing it, but I imagine it's the kind of place that if you're part of the activist scene, you probably kind of know everybody. So you're jumping into this milieu where there's like probably, I don't know, years or decades of like resentments and, and like sectarian mm-hmm. fighting. And you, I mean, we know how activist groups are. I mean, maybe that's a, a caricature, but sometimes they are like that. Um, so, mm-hmm. so what happens? I mean, it, it, it seems like, you know, potentially generative. It seems potentially explosive. Yeah, I mean, both. (laughs) A few things that we learned from the experience that reflect on what happens. The first is that we ended up very quickly becoming kind of therapists to movements because nobody ever asks people deep questions. Nobody ever asks each other about like their political biography. Nobody ever asks people like, how does the tactics you're pursuing align with the strategy that you believe will change things? And how does that align with your vision of the world you want to create. Nobody ever says, like, tell me the story of your political heartbreak. You know, nobody ever says, like, Mm -hmm. what is it about the way you were raised that made you turn out like this? You know, so there's a lot of ways that just by asking critical but friendly questions, we were able to, for some of our participants, perhaps offer a kind of therapeutic mode of engagement where people could actually, like, finally vocalize something and come to an insight about their experience. The other thing that happened is we really started from the very beginning, both of us being extremely dissatisfied with the kind of impulse, like for very understandable reasons, everyone seems to always say, which is like, oh, if only the left, whatever the hell that is, could just like get its act together and everyone could agree, then we would be able to like do everything. And I think Alex and I, from the very beginning, were like, that's that's bullshit. That's not actually how <laughs> things work. It's much yeah. better if people learn to disagree and sharpen their positions because when you have that disagreement and the positions sharpen everyone's politics become more acute and more uh, potentially powerful so i think yes i think part of our project was about trying to i wouldn't say stoke the fires of discontent but certainly sharpen the focus of how people disagreed and to really allow people to again have those kind of insights and us to have the insights about what made for those disagreements i think uh, maybe a third thing that comes to mind that we reflected along a lot in our book and in the aftermath of the project is that like none of the social movements we were working with were in any way successful and i'm not saying that in a derisive way at all I think that's why we chose Halifax is like, this is not a place where social movements were successful or really, if we're honest, like had very much of hope of success. It's a very, very conservative city in a settler colony that is, you know, like Halifax was basically founded and built by the people so reactionary, they fled the American Revolution and remained loyal to Britain. And the whole whole city (laughs) retains that kind of vibe. So these movements were not like there was no risk that there was going to be a revolutionary change in, in Halifax. And yet we really wanted to ask, like, what does it mean to, as we put it, dwell between success and failure with social movement mm-hmm. actors? Like they're they're not failing, but they're also not succeeding. And that's that's what that's normal. That's normal everywhere, whether we admit it or not. And even in contexts where in hindsight we can say, aha, this was the moment on the eve of a revolutionary change. That dwelling between success and failure is what happens always right on the eve of a revolutionary change. That's what how social movements mostly feel. There's only very, very few moments in history where people know that they're winning. So we really wanted to study that, like that moment. And I think part of what our project gave people, I hope, is a sense that that's kind of okay and that's kind of normal. 
the dwelling in success and failure, I think, is such an interesting point, something that comes through so well in the book, is that, you know, we have this tendency, I think, to think of, of social movements, like what is success, right? Success is, you know, back to this like old paradigm of studying social movements as, I don't know, like basically interest groups making demands upon the dominant order. And one of the things that I wanted to get out of this conversation and it comes through really clear in your book is like that's that's a very narrow way to define success because another way to define success is to look at kind of like what's going on in like sort of a prefigurative like world building and social reproduction sort of way like what what is the social movement creating um, that might be defined as a kind of success. So people talk about Occupy like this, like it was a failure because, you know, it didn't have any demands and the demands didn't, re- and because it didn't have any demands, it didn't have any policy successes. But then people that were involved, you know, will say something, well, just the opposite. No, it created this like, this this new kind of way of of going about, about these questions and galvanizing a kind of real, uh, kind of radical democracy. I guess what I wanted to ask you first um, in, re- in relation to that success-failure sort of paradigm is what is it about the traditional social movement theory that makes it unsuited or not particularly good at recognizing the kind of prefigurative politics that are happening that your book is so much about? Like, why is it that the traditional paradigm can't live in that middle zone between success and failure? That's that's a great question. Um, in part, my answer is very straightforward <laughs> uh, and a little dismissive. I would say, you know, look, when you ask a question like that, which is an excellent question, look at the subject position of the people telling the story. And for a long time, the people telling the story and not to be totally reductive, but, you know, bourgeois, middle-class, white men (laughs) in the academy who had absolutely no experience of or need to engage in struggle to defend their lives and dignity in society. Everything about their experience told them they lived in a meritocracy, told them they lived in a, a world that was properly ordered. They simply had no experience and no desire. And I mean, if, you know, like if people want to challenge this, I, I just... I dare you to to engage in the experiment of reading 1950s, early 1960s sociology and, and see what it says about, about non-institutional politics. It's it's like a mirror held up to the people who um who are evaluating the world, right? And and I say that not not to be dismissive about it. I say that with, you know, not saying that it, it didn't give us anything. Um, but that's a huge problem, right? When your story of the world and the way it is and how it changes is crafted only by people whom that world at least doesn't chew up, if not serve directly, then then you get a very partial and imperfect perspective on it, I think. Um, but it's also a question, you know, of the philosophical and, and, and scientific roots of our disciplines, really. It's a question of what we're trained to see. It's like, if you know, if I build you an instrument to detect a particular kind of element, and then you find it, but it's not designed to detect all those other things. <laughs> and and you say, well, they're absent. I didn't find them. You mm. know, are they absent or are you just not capable of seeing what's at stake there? Right. Um, this is, I think, one of the more interesting critiques of kind of a militant or um, ethnographically inclined approach to social movements. So I'm thinking about the work of obviously David Graeber here, but um, there are lots of other folks. My, my uh, good comrade recently, uh, Departed, unfortunately, Jeffrey Juris was also like a, a big figure in this field, turning a real ethnographic lens on social movements, people who were sympathetic to them, people who were uh, former activists writing accounts of their lives inside movements, showing people that there is more than just the kind of performance of politics on the outside, that there are all kinds of things going on inside those movements on a day-to-day basis that we don't see as, as passive observers or consumers of them. If we look back over some of the best social movement histories, and here, like I use that term broadly, you know, just talking about people's histories, you know, the work of Howard Zinn, obviously being kind of quintessential here, but so many more, right? Sylvia Federici, Peter Leinbaum, Marcus Redeker, all kinds of interesting folks writing histories from below where 
they show us that if we if we simply don't accept the accounts that have been given to us by the ruling classes, history is being made every day by people who don't get their names recorded and who aren't elevated enough to count in those official uh, records. You know, it's like Graeber says about the history of the state. You know, we learn to look for for tax records as if they're somehow evidence of civilization when in fact it's simply us reflecting, you know, our own realities backward in time, right? We look for monumental buildings, we look for tax records, we look for evidence of armies. It doesn't mean those things are civilization. It simply means those those hallmarks are things that we have come to associate with ways of being in the world that we recognize as socially ordered like we are. So what are we missing when we're not paying attention to all that other stuff that doesn't fall into those narrow molds? And really, that was the question that, that Max and I were trying to take up in the project. What is truly, I think, the most exciting thing about social movements, which is that while they're almost always constantly failing to achieve their promised objectives or that the sort of the, their aspirations, they are almost always succeeding in generating this traction for alternatives. You know, they're constantly building new kinds of ways of imagining the world within them and not just, you know, sitting around being like, oh, write a story about how you would live if, you know, this world was entirely different. You had magical powers and et cetera, et cetera, but in much more mundane, everyday ways, which are more important. You know, how could we relate to each other in a way that doesn't replicate police culture? Uh, how can we uh, build institutions that aren't simply bureaucratic nightmares and then don't reduce people to some narrow marker of their social identity? How could we really address issues of exploitation and violence within our communities in a way that doesn't just reproduce the carceral state or make people disposable, but at the same time highlights the kind of interrelational aspect of, of violence and seeks to find a way past that? These are just like, you know, just examples, but every movement worth its salt has come up with some sort of like answer to questions like that, right? And maybe they've stumbled, maybe they've been imperfect, but radical social justice oriented movements for as long as they've been around have sort of been like that North Star in some ways to other people. I think, you know, we, we talked about movements as laboratories of ways of living otherwise. Mm. And I really think it's one of the most important functions that radical movements serve. And one that's built on often like deep contradictions too, which is I think something that the typical social movement research and approach to social movements can't can't really contend with is the, the contradiction, which is that like to borrow a different language that we use in the book, but one that's very friendly. If you if you come from a worldview where you think that the system that we live under is fine, then it's going to be very hard for you to understand the value of social movements, except to the extent that they make that system better. So you reinterpret all social movements in terms of how they either build or don't build this world that we live in. But social movements, as Alex points out, are laboratories for world building. They're laboratories for thinking about what the world could be like, but they're also laboratories where people are actively together building a different world. And there's a real contradiction here because on the one hand, social movements, even if they're very, very pragmatic and they're just like fighting to get people safe injection sites or fighting against domestic violence or fighting against like for bread and butter issues, they're still always animated by a vision that the world could be different. Otherwise, why would you do it? You know, you have to believe on some level that the world can be different, whether you admit it or not. And plenty of movements are very shy about talking about visions of a different world. They think it's hokey. They think it's silly. They think it will get them dismissed. But nonetheless, one of the things that I think we observed so clearly was that every movement is always doing this kind of world, projective world building at the same time as what our research also revealed is that every social movement is also a little incubator for a different world. And this, I think we mean very, very pragmatically. This is where people build friendships and relationships. So many of the people we met in the progress of that project, that's where they met their lovers, their partners, their friends. They had babies, they broke up. They built whole worlds within these movements. And so thinking about this kind of movements as spaces of world building and contradictory world building, I think makes clearer what's at stake. And it's not to say that those things <laughs> You know, and it is a real contradiction. Often there is a lot of tension between fighting for a different world and creating another world in the now. And sometimes those things are can't be reconciled. Sometimes that leads to horrible heartbreak and horrible, uh, you know, destruction of social movements. And yet if we just deny that those things exist, as most social movement research does in a certain way, 
we're missing the most interesting part of the picture and the part of the picture that we as social movement organizers also need to learn from. Because if we can see that clearly, then at least we can try and strategize a bit around it. That sort of um, building a world building that you're describing, is that the radical imagination? What is the radical imagination? It's the title of the book. Could you explain a little bit about what you mean by it? Sure. I know it's a tough question. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we love this term. I think it certainly uh, focuses attention on things that I think people often mistake for what imagination is. When we when we invoke the term, and we're working in a very long tradition here, I think in a very, I want to point out a very materialist tradition in a lot of ways. I think, you know, for for many people, the imagination is highly individualized, kind of like the the terrain of the individual genius at work, the kind of like, you know, the muse behind all these like incredible innovations, creative explosions, all this kind of stuff. And while not denying the individual dimension to it, one thing that Max and I, along with a host of other thinkers and activists who are who are working in this area uh, agree on is that it's it's actually not an individual capacity. It's something that we do and we do together. So um, the radical imagination is, it's like a verb. It's not like a coat you put on. It's, it's a, an activity that, that we engage in collectively. When we do that creative work of envisioning that which does not yet exist. So I think what we wanted to do too is to, to mine that and to explore that. So how do people mobilize that, right? Well, it's not just in these like super explicitly creative sites, like in a like art exhibit or in a movie or listening to some incre incredible boundary pushing album, but really like in those everyday conversations we're having where people sit down, come together to identify a problem, uh, sketch out what might be a solution to it and figure out how to mobilize resources uh, of all kinds to achieve that end. The imagination is at work in a space like that. Okay, so let me ask you this. I know this is something that we've touched on in our conversations and I've heard you both talk about. So given the kind of capaciousness of the definition that you've just given me, it does seem to me like there's a lot of radical imagination happening on the right. There's a lot of, you know, we can talk about, you know, Occupy and what looks most Occupy-y today, right? It's like trucker protests. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but how, how is that similar or different from the radical imagination that you describe in your book? Yeah, I mean, I think we can't avoid the reality that the right has been extremely successful on capitalizing on the crisis of our moments and also capitalizing on the way that the kind of liberal capitalist establishment has mismanaged that crisis. And not only mismanaged the crisis, but basically tried to hide it, saying that everything's fine and things are getting better when like, it's pretty obvious to anyone uh, that it is in fact not. I think, you know, Alex and I haven't necessarily talked this through together, but I think we agree that there's a kind of question about to what extent we would use the terminology of the radical imagination to speak about the imagination on the far right, the reactionary right, the fascist right. On the one hand, it would be very tempting to say, oh, you know, what the left has is the radical imagination, which is about trying to plow into and open up space in an infinite possibility of futures. And that the left the sort of leftist, radical leftist, radical imagination is about reclaiming the potential of the world from what appears to be the necessities of the now. And that what the right has is like maybe what we'd be tempted to call the reactionary imagination, which is to say like, you know, they're always simply looking backward. It's always a kind of regressive nostalgic movement that wants to return us to a fabled past. They have no real solutions. They have no vision of a different future. But I think I'm convinced by Alex's skepticism towards this tempting argument. <laughs> I think Alex uh, is right that actually there are elements of the far right that are engaging in some really weird thinking about the future. And to the extent that those of us who oppose them fall prey to our own romantic notions of the radical imagination as something that only is possessed by people who believe in movements for collective liberation, uh, we're actually missing a big picture about what makes the right so successful in this moment. Because ultimately, you can't just build movements on a sense of like going backwards into the past. Sure, you can get people angry through nostalgia, but a lot of these movements are actually promising different kinds of futures 
They're often quite dark and bleak and dystopian. They often involve a great deal of death and destruction. They often embrace ecological catastrophe and kind of survival of the fittest based around, you know, completely bogus notions of what fitness is in a world like ours. But I think we would be we would be deceiving ourselves dangerously if we didn't tarry with the idea that the radical imagination can also be used to explain some elements, not all elements, but some elements of the radical right. I, I agree with that so much. That's very well said. I think troublingly too, as Max has already said, I, I think some of the neoliberal technocracy has plowed such a fertile field for the cultivation of radical rights ideas and grievances today. And I mean, the left, like the radical left has often pointed that out. That was in many ways a hallmark of the alter-globalization movement and that cycle of struggles. But in many ways, I think we've had the limits to that fantasy that Max was talking about, that idea that, you know, neoliberal elites, oh, everything's everything's going to get better. This is just a bump on the road. Well, if anything has shown that that is, that couldn't be less true, it was the pandemic and uh, certainly the, the manifestation of runaway climate change now and the climate crisis that's really put aside debates around whether or not you believe in, in climate change and, and really forced people to focus on the fact that the world is on fire. But it's troubling, I think, in, in this moment as we look around that the, the really the most organized, most vocal and most spectacular challenge to that tottering regime is being marshaled right now by the by the far right. And that's not surprising. We can look at lots of historical examples to see this. But unlike the movements of the past, where I think, you know, Max is exactly right, there was a real emphasis on recuperation. Many of the most dangerous and mobilized, animated, fervent, and fascist aligned movements of our contemporary moment are looking not to the past, but really to the future. And yeah, some of their fantasies are just, are either ridiculous or, you know, hyper-violent based on every form of oppression we understand today being uh, constitutional of our current moment. But others actually do speak to some of the most important crises of our time too. Not in ways most of us would enjoy, but, you know, thinking about what connection between people means, thinking about what makes life meaningful at the level of community, thinking about what social life should look like, not dominated by the owners of capital and corporations, for example. The right has answers to these. They, they are often not the ones, those of us who care about collective liberation would want or, or would advocate for. But I think it's really important to point out Unlike some of the the kind of liberal response to the rise of the populist right today, which is sought to sort of poo-poo it, dismiss it, uh, and and position it simply as as a, a repackaged post World War II fascism, I think that misses what is important about it. Like a canary in the coal mine, it's a symptom of the collapse of those old ways of knowing, doing, believing, and organizing, and it is it should be impetus for the rest of us to actually really understand just how important it is to have those visions of alternatives and not just visions in our heads, but things that we are actually coming together uh, to, to talk about, to build together, to experiment with. That, that's fascinating. It's such a, uh, a fraught position, I guess, to be in. Like I'm, I'm thinking of um, kind of an analog that I'm a little bit more familiar with in kind of the academic milieu that I'm interested in, especially around like science studies and social epistemology and some of these sort of like critiques of science and expertise that have been made for, for decades and decades. There was a kind of similar moment, you know, obviously post-2016 with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, where some of the kind of key figures were, were sort of wringing their hands and wondering like, oh, was, was our kind of sophisticated sociological critique of science actually kind of weaponized by, <laughs> mm -hmm. by a right? And then, you know, there's this 
this whole debate internally where some people said, no, this is, you know, this is nothing. This is not what we're talking about at all. And then there were other people that said, actually, this is independent verification that what we were talking about is accurate and true and right. And, <laughs> and other people can sort of mm -hmm. use those tools kind of whether we like it or not. And we shouldn't be so spineless because... Um, as scholars, because we don't like their politics, we should be sort of honest about the the tools. And what I'm hearing, mm -hmm. what I'm hearing from from you two is is a little bit more more the latter, where it's like, yeah, this is a concept that's uh, capacious enough to be used widely in some ways. And you know, push back if if you if you feel I'm mischaracterizing you, but but I guess my question is like, where does that leave you two and like social movement scholars in general? If like these kind of some of the most um, not politically exciting, but in terms of like their their imaginativeness, uh, exciting um, movements are on the right. How do you how do you go about that? Do you write a new book that's called like the right radical imagination, <laughs> like and you like, cross out right and say wrong or something? I don't know. Like what, what do you do? <laughs> well, I think there's a distinction to be made on the one hand about how the term the radical imagination might get used and then there's a second related question there about if the thing the right has is the radical imagination and if they have it have they appropriated it from the left and i think i'd want to take apart those two questions quickly separately and then maybe try and bring them back together I mean, what we learned as soon as we started working with the radical imagination and in the years since is that a lot of people have a huge investment in this term. And they have a huge investment because it's so fluffy. Uh, it's such a floating signifier. It means everything to everyone. It basically like in common use, and I mean, the way that Alex and I use it is quite rigorous, but the way that most people hear it, and one of the things that frankly attracts a lot of people to our book and our work is that when you hear those words, you're like, yes, that's what's missing. Because I think if you, mm -hmm. if you care about the world and changing it, then you come up against the fact that the vast majority of people don't act to try and change even their own circumstances because they think that no change is possible. And so there needs to be something that radicalizes the imagination, radicalizes in two ways, one of them being like uh, radicalizing in a political sense of being like, hell yeah, I'm not going to take this, I'm going to fight back against the power, and radical in the more uh, technical sense from the words Latin roots, which uh, comes from the Latin word for roots. So like an understanding of society and its problems and the problems mm -hmm. that affect each of us that go to the roots of society. So on the one hand, I think it's not surprising if the radical right starts appropriating the term radical imagination. That, I think, is going to happen. And, uh, you know, there there are both incredibly reactionary scientific elements of the radical right and there's also extremely romantic elements of the radical right mm -hmm. um and for the romantics especially the radical imagination has a certain kind of resonance uh of course you know this also comes and here we come to the second distinction the second part of the distinction i was making like I, I know I just said something that seems like a contradiction to this in my answer to your last question, but the fact is the right doesn't have any ideas. They never have. They've always appropriated the ideas of the left. Capitalism as a system and its derivative systems have always renewed themselves by appropriating the language, the discourse, and the ideas of movements for collective liberation and repackaging them in ways that are going to sustain or even deepen the forms of oppression that those ideas were designed to fight against. We've seen this again and again and again, whether it's the welfare state that saved capitalism after the Second World War, whether it was fascism, which was itself a sort of a form of uh, an appropriation of left-wing ideas that were then repackaged in this sort of authoritarian capitalist framework. Even, even the um, ideas of laissez-faire capitalism, not the sort of neoliberal ideas, but the ones that came before that in the late 19th century, these were essentially ideas of like liberation from the confines of like massive bureaucratic uh, imperial states and notions of freedom that got repackaged again as these right wing ideas. So it wouldn't it shouldn't surprise us to see that the right wing constantly is picking up the detritus that they can from the left. I think then there's the question about like, well, if what is happening on the right can be described as the radical imagination, 
if the ideas that are being presented by some of the more like kind of sci-fi far-right death cults that are, you know, <laughs> imagining a future race war with mm -hmm. laser guns and, you know, and going to Mars without any of the racialized people, which is like, you know, a real thing. Like, should we even use the term radical imagination if it, if it can also describe the right? And then I guess it just depends what you're looking for in that term. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're looking for a slogan to march under a banner, maybe not. If you're looking for an analytic tool to understand how people come together around visions, maybe it's still useful, but we need to refine the analytic tool to be able mm -hmm. to do extra work. And maybe then we need to start adding adjectives or qualifiers. So maybe we do mm -hmm. need to say like the reactionary radical imagination or the fascist radical imagination. And then we also need to add another qualifier on the other side to say like, you know, as Robin D.G. Kelly does, the black radical imagination or the feminist mm -hmm. radical imagination right. or the radical imagination that is part of struggles for collective liberation. There, I think that was that was all like so well said. I just want to add, I guess, a couple of a couple of points uh, just to build off what Max has already said there. And I think one thing that that I have to admit, I don't think it's an outcome of our research at all, but I will certainly note it as a a grumpy mid-career researcher these days. I think one of the reasons this debate is frankly muddied is because we have less good, rigorous social scientific research about the right than we do about the left. And that has only been exacerbated over the last 10 years, where I think a really good faith push <laughs> among some of my colleagues and others to really forward activist, so-called activist research in the university, it's actually led to kind of sloganeering and cheerleading. And this is kind of a grumpy assessment as a, um, as a professor, I'd say. It seems tangential, but I think this matters because what Max is talking about in terms of the rigor here, I think is really key. What gets lost in this kind of spectacular explosion of the new populist right and its more radical contemporaries is that these are not all the same thing we're looking at. And, and unless you can distinguish what's going on, what the actors look like, what the organizations look like, what their capacities are, then you end up talking very abstractly about things. And I think that's a huge problem, as Max is pointing out, right? So yeah, from the outside, it may look like a kind of mobilization of the radical imagination or that these movements are somehow the spearhead of something brand new, you know, that indeed the future is fascist. I don't know. But how do you, how do we actually know that? Whose accounts mm. are we believing? Are we mistaking social media influencers, brand building, and all the effects of social web for actual organizing on the ground? And, and I think that's a really important question to ask. I think it does point though, it does mean that we need better information uh, we need better research about, about movements and what movements are doing. But it also means that I think for those of us who identify with the struggle for collective liberation, that we should take this as a reminder that what we have been up to has failed to capture the attention of people in a broad-based way that can convince them that more humane, more dignified, more democratic, far less exploitative and far more sustainable futures are just as readily, if not more readily available than those dystopic ones, and that they can live more human lives by putting their energy into actually building them. And that is a conversation I think that I would love to see. I know it's happening, but I would, you know, for me, that's one of the big lessons here is not what the left broadly has done wrong to lose this fight, because I don't think that's at all what's happening. But certainly in this moment of profound crisis of the, of the neoliberal technocratic status quo being shaken to its very foundations, how then can we step into this moment and provide a context, facilitate a kind of conversation? And I mean that in the broadest way possible, not just a talk shop, but really like a dialogue, a deeply social dialogue amongst people who need to be convinced, who need to be encouraged, who need to be propelled into a space where they can actually reimagine social relations, not in some kind of fantastic way, but in a very basic, grounded, humane way that allows them to see the, the possibility of radical alternatives that are really just around the corner. So I have a slightly unfair question. Um, in one of the chapters of your book, you give a kind of whirlwind tour of social movement organizing in the 20th century, you, you, you characterize essentially like four waves of social movements 
in North America in particular, from like a more radical sort of grassroots approach to a more state focused industrial kind of labor relations approach to a kind of new left version that was more about a broader social revolution to the kind of more direct action, mutual aid, prefigurative politics of the kind of um, global justice movement. And the book ends there, or I mean, the, the history ends there. And I'm wondering just kind of in a general sense, I mean, you could you could answer this, you know, with respect to the right or with respect to the left or wherever you want. I mean, if you were to write that that chapter today, are we still in that kind of fourth phase? Or like, where do you think broadly with considerable generalization and omission as you write, but where do you think broadly we're, we're at with the scope of kind of left social movements? I wish I wish we knew. <laughs> uh, I, I can answer maybe a little bit from my side. I think there's two. I, I, I'm of two minds on this question. So on the one hand, I think it's always tempting, especially as a, sort of a, a social scientist or someone thinking about society to imagine that there's been a break. And I think we can't deny that in the wake of the Occupy movement, which appeared to many people to kind of fumble the ball on the financial crisis of 2008, there has been a big swing uh, among a subsequent generation of activists towards more state-based projects in certain circumstances. So I think following that, for instance, you saw a lot of people in Europe if we're just speaking about the global north, a lot of people in Europe invest a huge amount of energy in new left-wing political parties, especially in Southern Europe. In North America, you saw you know, a big investment in Bernie Sanders. In the UK, you saw a big investment in Jeremy Corbyn. And so it can appear to a certain extent that that is a, the pendulum swinging back away from a kind of project of autonomy and towards a project of state-driven radical change. I think that interpretation is suspicious because ultimately I don't think that pendulum swings the way we think it swings exactly. And also to accept that pendulum would also be to bracket out all of the other movements that have been happening uh, that have been actually extremely consequential, whether it's the movement for Black lives or Indigenous uprisings and blockades or the movement of direct action solidarity with migrants or the abolitionist, prison abolitionist movement, or the ways in which feminist movements have set their sights well beyond just different policies. Uh, all of these things have been going on at the same time. So I think this leads me to why I'm dissatisfied with the explanation that the pendulum has swung, because I think we do see that in fact, movements for autonomy are vibrant and uh, vibrating uh, at a very high pitch right now. And so I think this is my second answer to this question in a certain way, which is I think in hindsight, we might remember the period from even, let's say, the late 1980s up to the present as a single moment. And in hindsight, we might see that moment not like we can, of course, try and tell a story that's about a pendulum swinging from autonomy to to state-based solutions and back and forth and back and forth. But I think historically we'll probably look on back on this moment and see that there, there was emerging in this moment something that, for instance, Rodrigo Nunes speaks about as diagonalism, which is a sense that it's neither horizontal nor vertical. It's not just the verticalness of trying to get your people elected to change policies, but it's also not entirely the horizontalism of, you know, what Marina Citrin calls horizontalism. And I think even Marina is, is quite interested in these questions of di diagonal movements as well. But I think that diagonalism is not easy. Um, and we don't have a huge number of precedents for it. And we're living in a world that is changing incredibly quickly. And also a world where, you know, capitalism produces intergenerational strife in a way that's unlike almost any other system. So mm -hmm. we've actually got generations who feel the need for often quite good reasons to sort of um, define themselves against what came before. So my students have like no memory of the ultra-globalization movement. To mm -hmm. them, that's ancient mm -hmm. history. They almost have no memory of the Occupy movement. And they feel in order to have dignity in their struggles now, they need to create a retrospective um, story about why those movements failed so that they can say, oh, this time it'll be different. And mm -hmm. God love them. I mean, we all do that as young people. But yeah. 
I want to say that that's a symptom of the system we live under. Like there's something about capitalism and its drive for constant innovation and newness that produces that desire for schism. And unfortunately, we inherit that desire and we bring it to our social movements. And so it makes seeing the continuity and also the contradiction and complexity very difficult because we're obsessed with, in some ways, making these differences and distinctions. I, I do think we're in an interregnum. I, I mm-hmm. think to borrow from the language of the project, we're, we're in a hiatus right now. We're in a moment where like the old is really crumbling and the new is not yet born. And I think to some extent, what I'm hopeful for is that I do think the energy captured by the radical right right now has at least kind of really proven that the crisis is not like neither side, neither radicalized side wants a return to what we had before. Social movement scholars talk about this all the time, right? One thing that's necessary uh, for a, a, a crisis to turn into a truly revolutionary moment is an incompetent or disinterested ruling class. And I think we have that in <laughs> abundance right now, right? So I think that in, in one way, that's very scary because it means that the old paradigm is indeed, if not dead, then deeply compromised. And that's scary for people for all kinds of reasons, for very good reasons in terms of just your day-to-day life. But on the other hand, I think it's a really exciting moment where the ways that we've oriented our, our, ourselves, and I'm not talking about some awful, creepy red-brown alliance where we find common cause with fascists or where the right suddenly becomes friends to the radical left. But I do think uh, that there are real opportunities here to imagine um, a new way, new ways of living in relation to all these different kinds of struggles that are, that Max uh, has appropriately characterized as I think, uh, you know, diagonal in their orientation that can lead us to something new that, I don't know, maybe a decade ago we wouldn't have seen. So Opportunity does require crisis. I'm hopeful that we are in a moment of of reorientation. But you know, it's uh, social movement scholars are terrible at prediction. <laughs> I always say that. So we're great at, at diagnosis. We're terrible at prediction. Yeah, you know what the old joke is. You know, if you're a Marxist uh, scholar, if you predict five out of the last two revolutions. <laughs> um, just just wrapping up here, although we've touched on this a little bit in terms of um, sort of redefining the radical imagination or how we understand it today, um, I am curious to learn a little bit more about you know since 2014. Like, what do you what do you folks feel like has been the the legacy or the impact of the book? I mean, the thing that I get the most out of is. Uh, you know, we get emails several times a year by young scholar activists who tell us very flattering things about the book and, and what they're doing with it. I mean, I think it's a book that's unapologetic in its politics and its alignment with social movements and its, I wouldn't call it hostility, but certainly skepticism towards the value systems of academe uh, while still maintaining those and trying to see what can be done with them. And I think for many young scholars, um, they find that breath of fresh air. I mean, I wish I could say only we have done that. Many, many people have done that and they do it probably much better than we do. But uh, for some reason, they find our book at some point along their journey. And then they use it to do really interesting stuff with social movements and in places and in ways that we can't imagine. We've got emails from people in Indonesia, in Ireland, Mm -hmm. in the United States, uh, Eastern Europe, all over the place. And it's really just dignifying and and really heartening to see that, you know, I mean, the academic business of writing books, even if you're writing for a more activist audience, is a lonely one. Uh, you never know who's going to read it. So I've really enjoyed uh, that. I think the thing that's disheartened me a little bit over those years is just that, like, we really struggled, I think, as this interview has made clear, to give a materialist Uh, rigor to the idea of the radical imagination and to move it away from these kind of romantic idealism that often surrounds the world where it's just kind of a magic world that you say and like as if Mm -hmm. as if by uttering it you could dispel the the ghosts and demons that haunt social movements and and popular consciousness (laughs) today Mm -hmm. and I think I often see our work cited in ways where I'm like I'm not sure you really read it (laughs) I think you just I think you just want to cite this so that you have something Mm -hmm. to cite. Uh, And I also see the word radical imagination used a lot um, by a lot of different people, artists, activists, and hucksters in ways where I'm like, ah, like, I wish, Mm -hmm. I wish we could have a conversation about this because they often, I, yeah, I just, you know, I think they're, it's, 
it's very easy for those of us in North America and and who are so frustrated with academe to participate in a kind of anti-intellectualism. And, you know, there's nothing I, well, there's many things I despise more than, <laughs> than ineffective intellectuals, for sure. Uh, but I mean, it is certainly annoying to me. But at the same time, as social movements, as revolutionaries, as people who are dedicated to collective liberation, we need to also demand of ourselves rigor in our thinking and our terminology, because mm -hmm. time is short. We can't just constantly be going over the same material again and again and again, and uh, using words that feel good, but that don't mm -hmm. actually have a kind of analytic and critical depth to them. But that's not a problem just with the radical imagination. I mean, that that is a problem that haunts any terminology that gives people a sense of hope, whether it's abolitionism or, mm -hmm. you know, collective mm -hmm. liberation or healing and care. Now, uh, all of these words fill us with a sense that something else is possible. And we have to be precious, yes, about the sense of hope that we get, because God knows there's not a lot of it going around, but we also need to hold ourselves to a high standard, whether it's within institutions uh, like academe or in the movements themselves. Yeah, I mean, I just think that that is so well said. I, 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 I second all of that. I think my biggest frustration, biggest disappointment is exactly what Max just spoke to, uh, which is the yeah, despite <laughs> despite how hard I think we try to emphasize the materiality to it. And I, I don't say that as somebody who wants to reduce everything to just, you know, like our biological social reality, but I'm I'm endlessly frustrated at um at people's desire to retreat into the abstract. In terms of what I really love about the book, I think hearing just those stories Max talked about, but also getting news from uh fellow travelers, comrades, and friends about you know, exciting places the book pops up. So like in a pipeline protest on the West Coast of so-called Canada on the, you know, like the, the, the book sitting on somebody's bookshelf and they're and they're and they're using it as as just one point of, of reference in their struggle. I think that's amazing. I love hearing about it, uh, about the lives it's living elsewhere and the conversations it's provoking. So um, I tend to have a, a very like sort of like open view about what people do with with my work certainly i'm just so happy that it's it's out there it's traveling it's continuing to generate that conversation even though i think we struggle to to ground it in the material in the ways that we we hoped for well uh max haven um alex kasnabish thank you so much for your time yeah thank you so much that was max haven and alex kasnabish their book is called The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity. And I'm your host, Gordon Kadic. We had audio production from Jay Coburn and editing support from me. Jay and I are both from the Darts and Letters podcast, which is also on the New Books Network. If you like what you heard today, check out the rest of our episodes at dartsandletters.ca.